Welcome back to The Look and Sound of Leadership, an ongoing series of executive coaching tips designed to help you be perceived in the workplace the way you want to be perceived. I'm Tom Henschel, your executive coach, and today we're talking about readiness in coaching. Daryl supported the decision I was making. We didn't know what Grace would think of it. I was withdrawing myself as the coach for one of Grace's direct reports, a lawyer named Sterling. Sterling, most everyone agreed, created swirls of difficulty everywhere he went. His constant difficulties had prompted the company to get him coaching, but soon even the coaching had its own swirl of difficulties. For example, once Sterling had finally selected me as his coach, a process which had its own swirl of difficulties, I had given him three tasks. I give these same three tasks to almost everyone I coach. They're not onerous. Most leaders complete them in a week or two. You know, if travel is brutal or assistance is minimal, the tasks might stretch to a month. But in Sterling's case, more than four months had gone by, and he'd only completed one of the three tasks. Finally, I had decided I would go no further. I was withdrawing as his coach. Daryl was the head of HR. He had arranged this meeting with Grace, Sterling's boss, so I could explain my decision to her. I was grateful for the opportunity. I didn't want to use my time with Grace and Daryl to rehash my history with Sterling. What I wanted was to discuss Sterling's readiness for coaching, or more precisely, what I perceived as his lack of readiness for coaching. The most helpful document that I had for discussing who is and who is not ready for coaching was deep in my archives. I pulled it out and I refreshed it for the occasion. Shortly after we all sat down together, I handed the document to both of them. It was only one page. It had four boxes on it. Two boxes on top, two boxes on the bottom, forming one big square. Each box had a one-word title with some defining questions within it. Above the four boxes was the headline, Readiness in Coaching. And beneath that it said, To be ready for coaching, look for leaders to display... And then there was the first box in the upper left. Curiosity. Does the executive shift comfortably from leader to learner? Is the leader interested in the people around him, the systems around him, in himself? Then the top right. Self-reflection. Does the executive have an established habit of thinking about herself? Is she familiar with her inner life? Bottom left. Self-responsibility. Is the executive accountable? Is there a sense that her word is her contract? Bottom right. Resilience. Does the executive have a sense of health? Despite life's thousand natural shocks, does he seem solid and stable? After giving them a minute to look the document over, I said, About 20 years ago, when coaching was in its infancy, a bunch of coaches developed that list. We wanted to help organizations understand who we thought was and who was not a good candidate for coaching. 
Daryl said, oh, so you didn't intend this for someone you were going to coach. This was for someone like me. Right, I said. We'd found out the hard way that a lot of companies wanted coaches to come in and fix things that just weren't fixable. Like what? asked Grace. Like, like they'd want us to hold someone accountable, which, of course, as outsiders, we can't do. Or they'd want us to swoop in and fix someone they hadn't been able to fix for a decade. But, you know, we're just coaches. We're not healers. So we developed this list to say, look, you know, if you want us to work with your executives, they have to display at least a few of these. Not all four, asked Daryl. No, it didn't have to be, I said, but at least two. Grace said, and what'd you find out? About what, I asked. Did most executives have two or more? Well, no, I said. In the bad old days, the only people getting coaching were the problem people. If you were getting a coach, you were probably getting fired. And you were getting fired partly because, no, you didn't have any of these. I lifted the page and gave it a little shake. We thought those people were uncoachable. I bet that still happens sometimes, Daryl said. Oh, but less and less, I said. Most of the time these days, coaching is for high performers. Grace cut in with an edge, but not Sterling. Daryl and I turned to look at her, but didn't speak. She said, that's what you're saying. You're saying Sterling doesn't have even one of these traits. It was her turn to give the list a little shake. Grace stopped speaking and looked right at me. She was every bit the executive, throwing the ball to me, then sitting back to see what I would do with it. I was happy to speak. I was prepared to maintain a coach's confidentiality. I would not share with Grace or Daryl any specifics of any of my conversations with Sterling. But I would report behaviors, and I would report actions, and I would report as accurately as I could. That's it exactly, Grace, I said. I'm sorry to say that in all my dealings with Sterling, and I've had quite a lot at this point, I have not seen him display even one of these traits. I don't think he's ready for coaching. She took that in. Then she looked at the sheet again and said, Could you teach some of these? Well, that's an interesting question, I said. Can you teach someone to be curious? Sure, she said. Why not? We've all been curious as kids. I guess, I said, shaking my head doubtfully, but I think curiosity will be hard for Sterling. Over every exchange I had with him, I don't think he's asked me more than two or three questions. He's just not curious. Not about the coaching, not about me, not about things that are going to impact him. Curiosity is just not in his nature. She said, you're right. He doesn't ask questions, does he? I think I've seen that as a sign of competence. And it might be, Grace, I said. One of the most amazingly competent leaders I've ever coached was practically devoid of curiosity. He wasn't the warmest or fuzziest guy you've ever met, but he was terrific. I mean, he did not need much coaching, and he wasn't curious. Maybe that's how Sterling is. She said, but you don't think so. No, I said, I don't. Going to the next item on the list, she said, How would you ever know if Sterling was self-reflective? I said, You'd hear it in his language. People who are self-reflective ask themselves certain questions. 
why did something happen or what did something mean or how did I contribute to that outcome? And then they talk about those thoughts. Those thoughts are self-reflective. Grace leaned forward like she was drawn. I have been talking about that with one of my daughters. She is so reactive, and I keep telling her, look, I'm not looking for any specific answer. I just want to know you're thinking about yourself. How old is she? Daryl asked. Twelve, Grace answered. Oh, well, what do you expect? He laughed. No, but she's never been reflective, Grace said, and I think that's important. Why? I asked. I think the only way we can really get better is through reflection. And she is so smart. This girl could do anything she sets her mind to, but not if she doesn't learn to reflect a little. And at least that's my opinion. Putting his fingers on two boxes, self-reflection and self-responsibility, Daryl asked, Do you think these two are connected? In what way? Grace asked. Well, could you ever really become self-responsible if you're not self-reflective? With some passion, I said, Oh, I have worked with plenty of leaders who have an enormous sense of self-responsibility. You know, they hold themselves to a very high standard. But, oh my, they are so not reflective. They do not think about themselves. Daryl chuckled. Yeah, you're right. I know people like that. Do you give homework? Grace asked. Sometimes, I answered. Why do you ask? A friend of mine got coaching, and he talked about the homework his coach gave him, and I was thinking, you know, that guy is super responsible. I'm willing to bet he got his homework done just like he gets everything else done. I nodded and said, a self-responsible leader makes life easier for everyone, don't you think? I mean, if I can really trust you to do what you say you're going to do, even if it's just replying to my email, life gets so much easier, doesn't it? Grace said, That's one I think people would agree on about me. I am pretty damn responsible. But you think Sterling isn't? Not in my experience, Grace, I said. When Sterling and I had agreements, he rarely kept them. I did not see much self-responsibility in him. Grace pointed her pen to the final box, resiliency. She said, Doesn't resiliency just come with maturity? I had this young woman in my office almost all of last year, and she was all in a tizzy because the word vicious had shown up in her 360-degree feedback report. I mean, she just couldn't let it go. And I thought, oh, kiddo, get over it. I promise when you're older, you're going to see this is a nothing burger. I said, huh, I don't link resiliency to maturity. I know plenty of young people who are amazingly resilient, and I know a lot of grown-ups who I don't think are resilient at all. How are you defining resilience, she asked. Well, I think the same way you are, I answered. Resilience is determined by how fast you bounce back to the middle of the road when something knocks you off course. And, said Daryl, how big was the thing that knocked you off? I see some people hit a hole and I think, oh my goodness, that must have been some enormous hole because, you know, suddenly they've stopped their car and they're running around and they're changing the tires and getting all nutty and... And then other people hit what looks like the very same hole, and it's like nothing, like not even gravel, just poof. You don't think the first group, the ones changing the tire, are resilient? I asked. No, not to me, he answered. Grace said, I'm sticking with the bouncing back idea. And then lifting the page, she said, I'm not certain if Sterling has these or not, but you don't think he does. I'm afraid I don't, I said. 
Then I won't push you, she said. I know you've done good work here with others, so I'm going to trust your judgment. But I think I'm going to find him another coach. I'd like to give him another chance. I assured Grace that was fine with me. But I suspected, and time proved me right, that Sterling was just not ready for coaching. When a leader doesn't have even one of those four criteria, it's hard for him to achieve the look and sound of leadership. So why is readiness in coaching important? Because it's a way to measure what you want in leaders. Now, I gave you four words, curiosity, self-reflection, self-responsibility, and resilience. Now, are those the only four words? No, of course, absolutely not. I want to tell you the evolution of those words as a way of showing you how not sacred they are. Twenty-some years ago, there really was a group of groundbreaking coaches, and we gathered together to talk about things like what made a leader uncoachable. Now, you just heard me place myself at that table, and I am so grateful that I was at that table, but I want to tell you, it was a bit like the Sesame Street game, you know, one of these things is not like another. Everyone else at the table was a PhD psychologist or a clinical therapist, and then there was me, a television actor with a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Juilliard. I was so lucky to be at that table, but there I was, and that group grew into Corporate Coaching International, an executive development firm that was thought up and brought to life by Lois Frankel, just as she was becoming an international best-selling author. It was an amazing time. But here's what I want you to know. We really did develop a list just like that. But it didn't have four words on it. It had eight. And none of the words were the same as the four you heard here today. I mean, now, does that mean that the list of eight attributes isn't good? Quite the contrary. I actually think it's very good. In fact, it is so good, I have an episode about it. I did it 10 years ago. It's called Who's Coachable? It's in the archive. And that has the list of eight items on it. But when I knew that I wanted to write about coachability now, eight items just felt too unwieldy, and I didn't want to cut the list in half. So I was completely willing to come up with new words, because the words themselves aren't sacred, but I wanted to come up with really good words. And that's not an easy task. The question I found myself asking was this. What traits, in their absence, make someone uncoachable? It's a tough question, right? It's like a double negative. But, as luck would have it, I had dinner with my friend and colleague Pam Earhart, and Pam is the current managing partner at Corporate Coaching International, in addition to being part of my mastermind group and being a dear friend. So I asked Pam over dinner what traits she thought in their absence make a leader uncoachable. And what you heard here today is a direct outgrowth of that conversation with Pam. So you have Pam to thank for a lot of what you heard here today. Why am I telling you this evolution? Because there's no one right answer to the question, what makes someone ready for coaching? This is important because what you're really asking, when you ask that question, what you're really asking is, what makes someone ready for advancement? What makes someone ready for leadership? And you're also asking, what's the minimum we can expect from those people? It's like setting a baseline. Hey, if you want to advance, display these traits. 
So in today's episode, I gave you four words you can use. Great. Help yourself. Or you can use the list of eight that we generated way back then. Who's coachable? Go get it. Or you could probably look into your performance review formatting to find words that work for you. It doesn't matter where you find the words. The words aren't what's sacred. What's important is that you name the traits you think set the baseline for leadership. Once you name them, you can begin to make them appear. If you talk about things enough, they appear. So it doesn't matter if you're leading a group of four or a company of 4,000. Find your words that define leadership and start using them. That is one of the points in this episode. There's another point, too. It addresses the question, what do we do when there's someone like Sterling? I have a story to tell you about that, and I love this story. But first, I want to finish off my thanks for the month. Pam Earhart gets a giant thank you from me. Thank you, Pam, for all your ideas and your friendship. Thanks also go out this month to the people who posted reviews online. Taking a moment to post those reviews makes so much difference to this podcast. Thank you, truly. This month, thanks go out to here in the U.S., Steve Lawn and Miss Aya. From Australia, Nick Spiration, and from Canada, Fresh Reviewer. Thank you all. Now, what do we do about someone like Sterling? Do you know a movie called The Miracle Worker? Before it was a movie, it was a play on Broadway. It's about Helen Keller when she was a girl. Now, I don't know what the name Helen Keller sparks in you, but when I was a boy, she was famous. I would see pictures of her in Life magazine next to kings and queens or presidents. Or there'd be a picture of her lecturing somewhere. And all of this was a big deal because Helen Keller was deaf and blind. And she was born in the late 1800s when no one knew what to do with someone like her. So she began her life as a feral, untamable child. Now here's the story I wanted to tell you about this. In the movie, there's a scene where the Keller family is sitting down to their dinner. It's the late 1800s. It's all very civilized. There's china plates and real silverware and glassware. And suddenly, here comes blind and deaf Helen, and she wants food. But she's blind and deaf, and nobody helps her. So she's banging around the table, and she's grabbing food with her hands. She's turning plates over and spilling things, and, and the family pretends it's not happening. Until a woman named Annie Sullivan shows up and says, that's not okay. And the battle to drag Helen into awareness begins. <laughs> and by the way, in the movie, it is a battle. Oh, these two actresses really go after each other. You can tell that fight hurt. But at the end of the fight, Helen's transformation has begun. So why am I talking about the miracle worker? Because there are times, I think, when people like Sterling are banging around like that deaf-blind child. They don't know what they're doing. And the people around them act like the Keller family. They pretend it's not happening. But what I'm saying is, no. Be Annie Sullivan. Step up. Tame those behaviors. 
And one thing that will help you tame the behaviors is to have a model, words that you use repeatedly. Naming the behaviors you want helps to tame the behaviors you don't want. So that's my story. Here's a different idea that was buried in this episode, but oh my goodness, it is terribly important to me. I want to be sure to address this. I addressed this a tiny bit last month in the episode about 360-degree feedback reports. It was also addressed in the terrific conversation that I had about 360s over on Dave Stahoviak's Coaching for Leaders podcast. Boy, that's worth listening to. So what's the idea that I referred to? Confidentiality. As it relates to 360s, I feel strongly that the 360 report is confidential to the receiver. As it relates to this episode, I think about the conversation I had with Daryl and Grace, and I can imagine that some listeners might be horrified. They might be going, oh my gosh, Tom, you just threw Sterling under the bus with his boss and the head of HR. I want to address that issue because that is not how I see it. This issue of confidentiality is not taken lightly by any coach. It is one of the core ethical issues for the International Coach Federation. They address and define confidentiality quite specifically, and I believe, in my exchange with Daryl and Grace, I upheld confidentiality. And I had already talked about confidentiality with Sterling, and I told Sterling the exact same thing that I had told Daryl and Grace. I don't discuss the specifics of our conversations, but I will feel free to speak about behaviors and actions. And I hope that you heard me trying to report my experience in a way that honored my agreement of confidentiality. Another thing that I hope you heard in this episode is that it's possible to name behaviors or to name the absence of the behaviors simply and directly. I was trying to speak to Grace simply and directly. If you want to see the Readiness and Coaching PDF... You can download it from the online version of this episode. There's links embedded in there. You can hit the contact button, and when you do, say hi and ask for it. I'll be happy to send you the PDF. You would do all that on the Essential Communications website, essentialcom.com. It's essentialcom with two M's, dot com. Oh, and when you're on the site, don't forget, you can go into the archive and get the Who's Coachable episode, and that has the eight-item list on it. When you're in the archive, there are 19 different filters that you can use to slice and dice the archive. This episode was actually hard to categorize. I ended up putting five different filters on it. Two of them were leadership and management skills. When you're in the archive, four other episodes you might listen to, in addition to who's coachable, are leading teams Managing Disruptive Executives, Managing Performance, Up or Out, and Resolving Conflict. And by the way, thank you for letting me know that you like hearing that list. Every now and then I get a little self-conscious about that list, but then you say, no, I like it, and so I go on. And speaking of being in touch with you, oh, you have heard me talk in recent months about the listener survey that's coming your way. Well... All these privacy issues that have cropped up in the world recently have resulted in some regulations in the European Union, and those regulations would affect our listeners here on the survey, and we want to hear from everyone. 
So this whole data capture issue has just slowed us down. <laughs> Interesting times. That's it for me. Until next time, I'm Tom Henschel. Thanks so much for listening. 